everyone. This is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Today on the No Film School podcast, we have an interview with animator, filmmaker Glenn Keane. Glenn has been animating since the 1970s on countless massive feature films that you're familiar with. And he has a new film, his directorial, his feature directorial debut, out on Netflix, now over the moon. And a quick note about this interview, uh, this intro is going to run a little bit long, but I have to set the stage because the very early part of the interview with Glenn got cut off because of some technical difficulties, but uh, you'll just hear, I'll cover quickly what we talked about. Um, Glenn, when we take off the interview, uh, leads in with a story about working with one of the nine old men who helped advise him in his early days at Disney, and we just go from there. So there isn't a whole lot, but I'll set the stage here contextually so you're ready to go. Glenn is one of the most inspiring interviews I've done. You can feel the, for lack of a better word, magic when you talk to him because, look, he was mentored by the nine old men which is something we talk about in the podcast. And I'll give you a little context if you're not unfamiliar. These were the, the guys who were essentially Walt Disney's right hand from the very early days of Disney. Um, these were the men who worked with Walt Disney on the animated features that defined the Disney brand and legacy. And they also were the core team behind Disneyland and behind so much of what would become this massive media corporation that we know today. Glenn learned from these guys and he shares with us those specific lessons that came and, and the way he shares them, he's a great storyteller and they are really cool. Uh, he brings it to life. Um, the words right down from Walt Disney. I don't know where else you can find information like that or stories like this. And that's why I'm so excited for people to hear this. And I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, I have more thoughts that I want to share afterwards because there's so much we get into here, including uh, his winning an Oscar for directing the short Dear Basketball with Kobe Bryant, um, working with Kobe Bryant, his experience with that, the insights, getting texts from the man right before he would walk on the court, which is, even if you're not a basketball fan, crazy. Um, but there's so much he has to share. And I'm just, you know, I'll, before I kick it over to the actual interview, there's this idea that he touches on. If you can remember what it's like or what it was like when you were a kid and you believed in things that didn't really seem possible, but you had the ability in your imagination to maybe trick yourself or just believe that you could do something kind of crazy. Um, Glenn helps find that story and, and put it on screen. And he's been doing that for a really long time. And he's really close to that idea, uh, childlike wonder and imagination. And it's just, uh, well, I'll let, I'll let them get into it. You know, 
you know, we were talking about and what really struck me in particular was you were describing how, you know, the influence starting out at Disney and working with the nine old men and uh, in particular, the advice you got when you were doing the scene where Bernard is sweeping in The Rescuers. Yeah. And you uh, painted a picture, so to speak, <laughs> of how the enthusiasm was transferred to you for getting into the character and kind of creating um, who this person is through the animating that moment. And I just, I loved that. It stayed with me. And I wanted to kind of pick up there and you had started talking a little bit about how you, you lobbied to get uh, the assignment to animate Ariel in The Little Mermaid. Um, and, and they questioned your ability to do that, I guess, based on the other things you'd done. But can we pick it up right there, basically? And you can tell me a little bit about that assignment. Sure. So I had been doing these bigger than life kind of characters like the bear and the fox and the hound and Willie the giant and Radigan. And um, I was slated to do Ursula and Little Mermaid, but there was something that happened when I, I watched Jody Benson sing part of your world. And it just hit me how, I believed in this desire of this character uh, through Jody's singing, through Howard Ashman, Alan Menken's music. Something ignited in me. I thought, I I have to do that. I have to I have to animate Ariel. I went to the directors and said, "Look, um, I know I'm supposed to do Ursula, but I got to do Ariel." And, <laughs> Ron and John, Ron Clemens, John Musker said, yeah, well, can you draw a pretty girl? I said, no, I, I yes, I can. I've been drawing my <laughs> wife since we've been married. And um, <laughs> and she has very much of the girl next door kind of a look. And so I started to design Ariel. I mean, they, they said, okay, yeah, let's give it a shot. So I started to design Ariel based on my wife, Linda, and, uh, this really started something for me that has led to where I'm at today, uh, culminating really in Over the Moon. And that's animating these characters that believe the impossible is possible. I mean, before I was animating big, gigantic, powerful characters, but in these characters that are the the heroes or the heroines, uh, even if it's the beast, um, they they have this burning desire in them, and and I, I I think I'm really drawn to describe that thing inside of a character that's that they you can see it in their eyes. Animating the moment of discovery in a character is really what I'm after, and this film Over the Moon was the kind of the pinnacle of that with uh, Feifei. Yeah. So, I mean, that the movie is uh, over the moon is beautiful and you can sense in the, as soon as you're watching it without knowing, you can feel the influence of uh, the people you've worked with and the work you've done in the past in the colors, in the scale of it, in the imagination. It has so many of those elements and it feels like it comes from that same uh, fabric. And 
it it does kind of touch on some of what you're talking about is there's there's a discovery a longing a wishfulness and it also kind of reminds me of we, we quickly talked about we passed over but i referenced peter pan and you mentioned that being one of your favorites and i think that there's something also in that right and there's i feel like there's a little bit of that sparkle in over the moon as well um did it did that did, was that also an influence on you in this in this story when you were drawn to it initially yeah, they, you know, at the beginning of a movie, everybody wants to know. So, what what's it going to be like? What and no one can point, you know, to something that's not there. It needs mm-hmm. to be an example, though. You know, it won't be entirely that. But I I looked at um, Totoro as oh I, yeah yeah, and I. Peter Pan, though, is my favorite of any of the Disney films. It's it captures this, I don't know, this flight to this fantasy world that is actually real. I mean, yeah. and it it plays in that balance, which which is very much what where I was led to that in reading Audrey's script. Matter of fact, um, in talking with Audrey. Uh, the last conversation I had with her sitting on my couch in my studio just a few months before she passed away. Um, and she was helping uh, craft the script so that it would work with the songs because you know, it was not written as a musical and all these songs were added in. But we started talking about Wizard of Oz um, hmm. in comparison to Over the Moon. And, and as I was talking about to her about Fei-Fei's journey, um, I said, you know, so it's it's like a dream. I mean, she goes there and comes back having learned something, but, you know, it really is is a dream world. And, and Audrey says, no, it isn't. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? It, she said, it, it really happened. I oh. love that. <laughs> okay. And then, well, then what about... Um, what about Dorothy when she goes to Oz? I mean, that's obviously a dream. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it's just like, what? So you you really think Dorothy went to Oz? Well, of course, don't you? And she leans into me and there's, here's this woman who's frail, weak, you know, her strength is going and yet there's this fire in her eyes like, I believe this. And I realized for Audrey, how important hanging on to the truth of the experience of this movie was for communicating the the message to her family. This was not a theoretical or a fanciful thing. This has deep roots and weight to it. Um, And I, I promised her, we both agreed, we will tell this story and keep it on a razor's edge where the audience can choose which way they want it to go. If it's real, it's real. We have planted so many things in this film to make it feel real and true. But if you want to go the other way, there are elements in there that could say, this was a, a fantasy, but we, I would not lean one way or the other. 
I and, love that so much. Mm. <laughs> it's so well said. And I just, I could, I, I mean, I just contextually, Audrey Wells, who wrote the script, um, she was very ill at the time that you guys were completing. How, at what stage did you come in, into it and how long ago had she written it? Well, uh, I had started um, this film really through a talk that I gave at Annecy. Uh, I had no idea that Over the Moon was going to be part of my future at that point, but I gave a talk called uh, Thinking Like a Child. And in that talk, I described everything that I love in animation, ascent, and especially animating characters that believe the impossible is possible. And in that audience was Palin Chow, the head of Pearl Studios, and Melissa Cobb, who was not yet, but would become the head of Netflix animation. And they both had uh, Audrey Wells' scripts, which she had just finished in their hand. Uh, and they they both looked at each other and said, that guy needs to direct this movie. And That's so cool. Wrote, <laughs> me after it, was, it was like I was auditioning for this film and I didn't know it. And I was already developing, Jenny Rim, my producer, myself, were developing a different feature that I would direct um, and that we were well on our way to, to explore and go down that path. And then this came along and uh, George, I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but I, I really do believe that the very best things in life are a gift. The things that you, you're not working towards, but when they come, you just, wow, I can't miss this. This is uh, like Kobe calling, you know, and over the moon was the same thing. Um, so I came into it uh, after Audrey had written. I did not know that she had cancer at that time. Um, but uh, by a year later, uh, I did know. And it affected everybody on the film, the importance of, of this story and what was put in our hands and how um, how deeply we we took that responsibility in communicating that. And the wonderful thing that Audrey did was crafted a movie that was so bright, so fun, so joyful, and yet dealt with something so difficult. Yeah. Um, um, you, you keep it's, it's there's, the only way I can put it hearing you speak about it. It's like you keep the flame uh, of these, of these dreams and wishes. And I love, I want to elaborate on, on the point you made about, you left it possible in, in Over the Moon to believe it either way, even though it's clear what Audrey Wells thinks. And I think what you think, just like with Wizard of Oz or Peter Pan, you left it to the audience. And that's so important because it creates an engagement, but also it allows the audience to choose to believe. That's such a powerful choice to make. And I, I mean, personally for me, I think there was a certain age. I don't know if this was true for you too or for others, but I did, it didn't even occur to me that in Wizard of Oz, it was a dream until I reached a certain age. And suddenly I saw those other clues. I was like, <laughs> oh, weird. I guess maybe it is. But when I was a little kid, I was like, I, it didn't occur to me. It was like, it just because I think that's part of the child's mind, maybe. And that's part of what we're returning to. That's part of the magic of these stories. So certainly with Peter Pan. Um, I mean, the, the opening music, 
and all, it's also my favorite Disney movie. So we sh- we have that in common. But oh, really? opening music gives you all. Yeah, I've, I just love it. I showed my own kids it recently. But it, it's just that the just right from the start, they're telling you, like they're kind of giving you the keys to unlock it. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That- zoom, 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 zoom. <laughs> when there's a song in your heart, yeah. It's, yeah. Oh, and but I gotta I gotta say, there's attached to this idea of that believing that world is real is also something that Walt Disney always talked about the plausible impossible Hmm. that you've got to address the plausible. Um, Because if you don't, you're asking people to commit intellectual suicide in some way. And they, they (laughs) have to, uh, set aside their brain and you can't do a movie that way. There's got to be something that like in Peter Pan. um, I love it when Wendy and John and Michael, and they all start floating in the air uh, and they're about to fly. And then we flew, you know, they're saying we flew, we flew, we flew. And then boom, they all. Right. Right. There's a little more to it. Like they have to figure it out. Right. Peter says, I don't understand. All you need is faith and trust. And oh yeah, dust and pixie dust. And yeah, it's the gravity was so important to play that moment. And when I was reading the script, I remember the part where Fei Fei's, taking off and the rocket is going up and I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm with it. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm not going to believe it. If she gets to the moon, this is just like, this is crazy. 12 year old. please. And then Audrey has this moment where everything fails and it starts tumbling and falling back to earth. And it's like, yes, thank you. But now you got to save, you've got to save her. And that the power that you have when you create a want in the audience, suddenly mm. you put you put energy, you put um, control in a director's hands. When you know what the audience is wanting, now you really have the steering wheel, and you can do what you want, um, and you can save Fei Fei, or you know and. And Peter Pan, you could sprinkle pixie dust. Uh, those those moments were so important. And for me, when you do when you know that, now you also have a responsibility not to give the audience what they expect, um, because you got that power. Why waste it? <laughs> so, like when Fei Fei is in the her rocket, and she says. She's about to take off as she's singing rocket to the moon. Bomb. And uh, okay, I don't hit the notes properly, but yeah. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> she hits the button properly and the rocket's supposed to take off. But you know, you one thing you cannot do is have it take off. And so just have it go backwards. Yeah. Just grind slowly forward. And it was all the way through the movie is. I was constantly asking myself, what, what is the audience expecting? And then how can I turn that around? So that's not what happened. Something else. This is such, these are such invaluable pieces of, of, uh, storytelling wisdom. Uh, I just want to go back to something you mentioned because 
when you said you mentioned like Walt Disney talking about the improbable and it's sort of like somehow grounded in our reality so we can take the we want to go on that journey but you have to you have to take us there through something that's somewhat challenging so we can buy it so so that want becomes strong enough that when you deliver it we're on board it's something like that right i yeah. mean there's something so powerful about that idea that if you just go a to b right directly then we're not going to buy it or something right well, but you the plaza it's the plausible impossible i just enough just give me just give don't give me too much just yeah. give me enough like when they they, they crash lands on the moon um, you're thinking, wait a second, wh- what about the oxygen? No, no, they, they can't breathe. So you don't let them breathe at the beginning. And matter of fact, Croak wakes up and just clutches his throat and uh, falls over. Right. And there's like, okay, thank you. But then these magical creatures come in and breathe what I call animation license on them. Yeah. (laughs) Everything is possible. You can have, you can have oxygen, you can have a certain amount of gravity, whatever it is that you want. And so I, I exercised, I pulled my, my animation license out constantly (laughs) showing all the, um, you know, the, the logic police like oh, sorry now here's my license i'm i'm free to do this <laughs> <laughs> but you but you created that desire in the audience first right cuz once right. we had the desire for you to take us there because you created an obstacle or the story did then you said and i can do this little, one little trick and that'll get you there now that you want it enough you know yeah. i love i love that uh tool i haven't heard it I haven't heard it discussed in that way. And I think it's, it doesn't just apply to animation. It applies to stories in general. So this is your feature directorial debut. Um, and yes. that's, uh, that's amazing. And, and this is obviously a special project to be that. But you have directed some animated shorts, including one extremely important one, uh, more so all the time, really. And also now kind of, tinted with a bit of tragedy, but Dear Basketball. And I want to talk about it, not just as, you know, I I will admit I'm a Kobe Bryant fan and admirer, and I loved the short, but also because it feels like it connects to this idea of the dream, right? I didn't make the connection until you started talking about it, but there's an aerial part of that world thing going on. How did you get the, you said the call came out of, you know, it sounds like left field. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Once again, it's the best things in life are a gift. Um, and I was, you know, planning on actually the project that I was planning on again, but when Over the Moon came in, um, I, I don't know if I'll ever one get day, One that. day that project will happen or it'll just be leading you to other things, right? <laughs> That's right. It's always got to be something that you just can't say no to. You have to do it. But there's a person we were working with up at Google, Karen Duffield, who was working with the team that we did uh, duet with. And she contacted me and said that Kobe had contacted them and wanted to get in touch with me. That uh, He was apparently a big animation fan, um, mm. which I had no idea. Uh, so we arranged a meeting. And we were in our little 
West Hollywood Spanish style house that's turned into a studio and this tiny little um, living room that was set up there as our story room. And Kobe comes up in uh, the big limo with you know, big SUV <laughs> and um, he hops out along with Vanessa and Gianna and Natalia and they came walking up. I was thinking, this is a dream. I cannot believe Kobe's <laughs> and you know, we give each other a big hug and he steps in to the studio. And uh, I knew that he, I had heard that he'd been visiting other studios, big studios looking for someone to animate a project for him. Yeah. And, um, when he walked in, he looked around in this I mean, he had to duck underneath the, <laughs> right. the little ceiling in our room there. And um, and he's looking around and he's just quiet. I'm thinking, oh, I know what he's thinking. Like, this this is an animation studio. What? I mean, I had a whole bunch of little sketches on the wall. It was a storyboard. And, and he said, this is perfect. <laughs> and he's very, Kobe's a very, very quiet quiet you gotta lean in and listen to him. Said, this is perfect i said what do you mean it's real it's it's just real it's like it's so like everything i wanted it to be um it was there was no um big studio corporate thing it was just a group of of us as artists, my son, Max, developing his project there and Jenny Ram and myself. And it was a very, very tiny little team. And so we really connected with it at that point and then sat down in my back office and um, um, my wife was there and we, you know, we just connected with his family and him, him stroking. I just remember him sitting there stroking Gianna's hair the whole time as I'm doing drawings of the characters for them and and what kobe and i really connected on was um beethoven that wow. <laughs> my love of beethoven his love of beethoven wow. how i animated like beast's transformation to beethoven's ninth and he talked oh, about wow. he played a championship game to beethoven's fifth in his head structuring the game dramatically to that what? Um, I'd never heard that before. I well, I'd never heard either of those things before. Those are amazing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh how you, so you animated the beast's transformation in your mind? Tell me about that. That's that's well, amazing. Beethoven's ninth has, is 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 a long-term uh desire to animate that movie. Yeah. It's kind of like the the Mount Everest of ideas that I never feel like I'm quite ready, you know, prepared for. Yeah. Um, but w when Beast is transforming musically, I needed something to describe this spiritual transformation taking place on the inside out. And that was everything in the fourth movement, like the angels are singing. I mean, the, the choir, yeah. Beethoven, um, the the singers were complaining that they can't sing that high and he would not change the notes, forcing oh, wow. them to do it. And um, 
it was ethereal, beautiful, and soul-stirring. So I animated it that way, and that's how I showed it to the directors with Beethoven's Ninth. Yeah. Uh, and so Kobe just was like, what? He, he couldn't believe I was saying yeah. that. And then, so then he told me about how he had um, met with John Williams. He gave John Williams a cold call once and was asking about how – do you compose music? Um, how do you think structurally about bringing music into what you do and um, into a film and storytelling? Because he was thinking, how can I use music in structuring a game in my head? Wow. Um, and after that, that lunch, then he started thinking about Beethoven's Fifth. And I, I don't know which... Which came, yeah. But he said that that was the structure under that's, that playing in his head. That's a beautiful mind at work, really. Wow. That's just an amazing thing. And so you, you guys connected on that. And he has this, you know, he has the reputation for being exacting and precise and dedicated. And yet it feels like, in a way, the way you two connected was on something much more human and creative in spirit. And, uh, you know, the the desire to discover something creatively and be on the same page. Uh, yeah, I knew that I would not connect with him on basketball. <laughs> Few would, right? <laughs> yeah, I said, look, you got the worst basketball player on earth animating you. And he said, that's good because everything you learn about basketball is going to be through studying him. And it. It really was. At one point, I downloaded Kobe Bryant's top 20 plays on YouTube, and my son Max and I um, sat there, Jenny Rim as well, my producer, and uh, Kobe, and we said, um, okay, Kobe, I can't animate you unless I know what's going on in your head. I mean, then I told him about um, my mentor saying, don't animate what the character's doing. Animate what the character's thinking. And did feeling. you tell him the Bernard story, the sweeping story? Oh, I did. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, such a good one. <laughs> I mean, he connected to all of that, like, yeah, just immediately. And so the amazing thing is, he's got a photographic memory, and he remembered everything. And there was this one, and we we went through each of those twenty shots, and he talked about what was happening. And I'm just for example, one of them was i think there was like i don't know was there was a final chance for the lakers to win the championship and uh there was was it 1.7 seconds left on the clock something ridiculous sure. like yeah and everybody knows the ball's coming into kobe and it's got to be a three pointer two pointer to tie three pointer to win so of yeah. course kobe's going to go for the win but an incredibly difficult shot um and so he's surrounded by people, by players, yeah. the best in the world, blocking him. Yeah. And he darts out to the right, and the ball comes in. It gets to his hand, and he's moving so fast towards the sideline and sh shoots this ball just at the zero point. Or I think it was 0 0.3 seconds left. And the ball leaves his hand and travels – but there was such a momentum of him moving to the side, the ball, you 
track it and it goes in the air and it curves in the air because of the momentum and goes through the hoop. I mean, whoosh, and they win. And, and Kobe said, you know what I was thinking about right there? I said, no. <laughs> what are you thinking about? And he said, you know how I learned to do that? I said, no. He said, when I was a kid, I would ride my bike with my friend and we would throw a rock to hit a telephone pole, but the rock kept missing, just going past it until we learned to throw it ahead. And then it curved and hit the pole. He said, that's what was going on at that moment for me. Uh, it was just like, oh man, I love working with this guy. That's so cool. Yeah. He brought you inside in a way. So of all the characters you've animated, you know, like Ariel, the Beast, Bernard, <laughs> you animated Kobe. But this was one where you got to talk to the person about what was happening inside. That's just such a unique uh, experience, you know, and that and that was motivating it. Um, well, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Let me just point out the there's something. The amazing thing was because of Kobe. um and that this year kicked off this 2020 with the death of Kobe and how that was the start of this crazy year. Um, but the, the connection point of Feifei and Kobe, they both had that believing the impossible is possible. And Kobe's real strength was not his athletic ability it was it was his hunger to learn um and mixed also with always believing the impossible was possible um and i really this is Feifei. this is exactly everything about her is her how intelligent she is knows science and math and physics and technology and and then on the other side, there's that part of her mom that helps her see what others don't see and believe what others don't believe. And um, and to animate that spark in her eyes, that that's, that's why this film to me was the pinnacle for me of my career of, of animating that the very thing that makes me want to be an animator, what makes me want to be a director and uh challenge the animators to to hit that, to get that, to do it in the design, to build it so that we're giving them the tools to animate that kind of depth in her eyes. Uh, it you, you make an amazing point about uh, Kobe Bryant that he could make the impossible seem possible. <laughs> and he did it, it. It almost peeled away everything about athletics or sports and what greatness because it was just like oh i'll do the most difficult thing you can think about and i'll make it work and sometimes it won't but when it does work you'll be in awe and it connects to what you're talking about of course that idea of i'm going to do a magic trick or i'm gonna show you something you didn't think could happen and it connects to you know you you contextualize it so well 2020 has been a very challenging year in our country and our culture. And his his untimely passing was just the beginning of this, really, in many ways. Uh, and and uh, to have a movie and to have a story right now that is about 
the impossible being possible or about something magical, some childlike hope, wish being fulfilled is perfect and uh, exciting. And I, I, I hope it's I hope everybody I hope people see it, but I, I I think it's just a great message and to stay connected to that when it feels like things are getting it's it's becoming impossible to go outside, right? In public. But yeah. everything is more valued and maybe more uh more of a gift, like you said. Yeah, but, I think this like Fei Fei says, I just want things to go back the way they were. Uh yeah. Um, and we we don't you can't you can't go back you can only go forward um though i realized in the last few weeks as i've been talking about this movie and how i'm still been hanging on to that idea i want it to go back um and it's going through it's believing something good is on the other side and you just lean into that uh, I remember asking Kobe, oh, man, that moment where his last game of the year um, where he scored 60 points and my son and I were in our little studio just screaming our heads off. Actually, Kobe, before going on the court, is texting me. Um, and I'm thinking, what are you texting me for? You're supposed to go, what? Why am I getting a text from Kobe? And he's talking about, what he wants animation to be and how it needs to be such an expressive uh, art form. And he's, he's already thinking about after the game and doing something together. Um, and so. What did you text back? <laughs> I said, stop texting me. <laughs> so, so the whole world is watching you play basketball tonight. <laughs> So after he, you know, he gets those 60 points, I, I said, Kobe, that the pressure on that last free throw to get you at 59 and will you get 60 or not? And it's the last shot of your life in basketball. The pressure on that must have been incredible. And this was just so typical Kobe and how uh, he, he just said, are you kidding? I wasn't going to miss that shot. <laughs> like, oh, come on. Now you say that afterwards, but no, that, that kind of was, he said, I'll tell you what I remember about that shot. I was looking at, you know, the basket getting ready to shoot. And normally um, everybody is waving from the opposing team, trying to distract you behind the basket. This, he said, it was a sea of glass. Everybody's iPhones were up and all you could see was reflected glass. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, that would even be more pressure. But to him, no, no, he was already, it was already in through the hoop. He was, he was living past. And I, I keep thinking about this um, pandemic, living past, living through it, going through it, having the whole world share a common pain and common difficult challenge that we are all going, and it goes beyond politics. No matter yeah. what happens, we as a world have experienced this together and that we'll come through it. And 
know, for artists around the world, animators now, the way we communicate, the way we use Zoom, I feel like every country in the world is is now part of my um my team that I can call yeah. on to work with people. So yeah, it could really change our connections and our and our workflows to put it yeah. more in in concrete terms. But it could really change how we connect and how we stay connected. And and uh, it's so nice to hear someone who has, you know, I mean, both of these stories, the the um, Dear Basketball and Kobe, but also talking about over the mo- over the moon and and there's some tragedy in there in both of them now but you uh you carry such hope for both and uh it's nice to hear a voice of hope where do you get what do you draw from personally i mean i usually wrap up our, our my interviews on the podcast talking about advice that someone would give people starting out but i think and i and i want to know what your advice to people starting out now is but i kind of also want to know where do you get this, the well of, of, where do you draw this hope from for you? Because artists, we struggle a lot. There's so much failure, you know, and so much, there's so many uh, roadblocks we encounter. Um, where do you find that um, perseverance, but also positivity? Well, when I started at Disney, I was 20 years old. Um, and the one thing you've got in common with everybody else is that you all feel like you're faking it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Or that you're afraid that everybody else is going to find out that you're faking it, but they're not faking it. That's really the, the way you see other people. Right. Yes. The other young artists that come from around the world and we're working there, I felt like, no, they deserve to be here. I don't. Yes. Um, and you feel incredibly uh, insecure. Um, and I think that that's a common, that is a real common, but there's a great book called art and fear that I would recommend to any, any creative person to get that book. Um, because it's the fear that is such an important part of keeping you humble and humility is, um, comes from seeing yourself accurately and for me that has really come from uh the field that i'm working in but the idea of observing life around me that i was taught by my mentors to study the life the world around you and my faith says that God has made everything perfectly. He is the ultimate animator, the one, the giver of life. And when I say every good good gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, I, I very much uh, learned that. And I learned that um, how much I depended on others around me, um, the creative ideas, the opportunity to work with the nine old men. These are things I didn't deserve. I, I, I don't know what to say, George, other than that. I just really am truly thankful for these things. Um, and I grew in my, my faith as a Christian, very much in Jesus as uh, the one who guides me 
I spend time uh, reading scriptures. Uh, these these are the sources of light and life for me. Um, and I am so thankful that I am surrounded by people, whether they believe what I believe or not is not the issue, is that um, we are all the ones who have received something very, very special. Um, so I, I, I look at my team that way, that I'm, I'm depending on them um, and the gifts that they have to share with me and I will share with them. Uh, that's, that's really the way I, I lean in trusting that something good is coming. I, I think it's, uh, it's a message that's so great to hear. Uh, it's an industry that makes it hard to stay connected to things like that. And certainly the idea of humility, um, it just doesn't, um, it's so valuable and setting aside ego and, and take, and seeing what you get as a gift, valuing it feeling fortunate to have gotten it. Um, you say, you say you were undeserving and, and in a way so many people can, we can quickly forget or squander those moments, a time with a mentor or an opportunity to learn from someone. If we don't have the clarity to see it as that opportunity, you know, and I think what you did do is make the best with that time, you know, and, and your transfer, your direct line to, you know, the wisdom from a Walt Disney or from the nine old men, and you're bringing it to all of our listeners now. So I'm really grateful for that. And, and I thank you for the time. This has been, uh, been really nice. Um, and, uh, I, I, I'm really excited for people to see this movie. I think it's the perfect time for it. It's what everybody needs. Thank you, George. I really appreciated your questions and, uh, allowing me to share, you know, very authentic, authentically my own perspectives on animation life. Uh, I, I just expect, um, continued growth. Um, I mean, Picasso said, I'm, uh, when I was young, I could draw and paint like Raphael. It's taken me a lifetime to learn to draw like a child. And I, I just think it takes a lot of years to grow young. You know, and so I'm just going to keep doing this. Um, I mean, you can hear it. I mean, you're it's a directorial debut after years of, of nothing but accomplishment in your field. So you're breaking new ground and doing something new and exciting now. And that I think that energy is uh, that's I, I, I think it's great for our our audience. Um, and that's exciting. So and I'm going to go. I might go listen to some Beethoven right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that. Yeah, listen to the fourth movement. That'll, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And of course, thanks to Glenn for coming on and doing the interview. Over the Moon is available on Netflix. Uh, you should definitely check it out. Um, you should rewatch Glenn's work from Little Mermaid to Beauty and the Beast to, hey, even Star Trek, the animated series, and be aware that he did some of the backgrounds. Um, I don't know if he'd want you to necessarily rewatch that one, but I, you know, I just want to add, like, this, this interview went to some really deeper places philosophically and theologically, and I am not a man of faith in the traditional sense, but Glenn is. And I love the idea of embracing faith 
of any kind, of all kinds, and using it to guide you to something. Embracing something that can bring you closer to your passion, your zone, your creative space, your hopefulness for humanity, whatever it is. It's so easy to be cynical right now. And Glenn is not. He is hopeful. And his storytelling is reflective of that and has been his whole career. And it was an honor to have him on here and to hear him speak about that and to share how he stays positive and inspired. And, uh, you know, this industry, as we all know, can really grind you up and make you not hopeful and make you bitter and make you angry and make you jaded. And that's we're all so familiar with that. And to have somebody who's been in it for so long and who doesn't have that and who continues to find new things popping up and new debuts <laughs> after being in it for, for so many years, it's crazy and it's it's great. And so I'm so glad we did this. And uh, of course, like, rate, subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, um, head over to nofilmschool.com, read all of our other content. And stay tuned for more great interviews, of course, on our podcast and our weekly show. And thank you so much for listening.